you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee, dee, doe, doe, dee, dee. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike of the World Famous Down East Mike Podcast. How's everybody doing today? This is Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. We're so much more cheerful than Frank Norwood, and that's why he's not allowed to do the podcast most of the time, because you can't trust him when he's on air in front of an open mic not to say something that's inflammatory or derogatory or one of the Tories. You remember when the Tories used to be a political party, the Whigs and the Tories? Uh, It's cold this morning. It's about 37 degrees. It's starting to spit snow a little bit in the snow forecast for tomorrow. And they're saying, oh, a dust into two inches. Well, that's borderline get the plowbaroo out. It's it's almost like, um, yeah, it's winter. Well, it's not the official winter. Anyway, this is Downey's Mike episode 108. We made it that far. Our motto is some of it's whimsy, some of this is true. The interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. And we also would like to remind everybody that the Down East Mike podcast contains absolutely no mean words, just wholesome goodness from Down East Maine. It is a historical, literary, auditory candy store. And we ask if you heard the bells on the door when you came in. In today's episode, it's a rough opening day for deer hunters in 1977. Wasn't that when the Robert De Niro movie came out, The Deer Hunter? Uh, Boston Pops, Rock 7500 in Augusta. That was on this day in 1977. Can you imagine Boston Pops pulling in 7,500 people? That's a lot. That's half them. That's more than living Augusta. All about matches from 1893, kind of like a match overload. Uh, Word of the day, birthdays in a constellation. We were trying to think of some way to string together some words like, you know, we have a bi-weekly bird, an illness of the instant, an insect of the instant. We tried to think of something cute with stars and constellations and galaxies and came up with absolutely nothing, the empty pocket syndrome. Uh, Our word of the day can be pronounced one of two ways, sinusure or sinusure. C-Y-N-O-S-U-R-E. It's the northern constellation Ursa Minor. That's one way, the sinusure. And a, a definition is one that serves to direct or guide a center of attraction or attention and they used it as an example. They have turned an eyesore into a sinusure. His rapidly increasing wealth has made him a sinusure in political circles. In a couple of sentences. Ancient mariners noted that all the stars in the heavens seemed to revolve around a particular star, and they relied on it to guide their navigation. The constellation that this bright star appears in is known to English speakers today as Ursa Minor, or the Little Dipper. But the ancient Greeks called it Kynosaura, a term that comes from a phrase meaning dog's tail. Kynosaura passed into Latin and Middle French, becoming Sinusure, 
And when English speakers adopted the term the mid-16th century, they used it as a term for the constellation and the star, which is also known as the North Star, and also to identify a guide of any kind. By the early 17th century, Sinashore was also being used figuratively for anything or anyone that, like the North Star, was the focus of attention or observation. And I think as we go about our day today, we will be able to point out many Sinashores in our in our little uh, public uh, arena. Birthdays today. Happy birthday to Trevor from Litchfield. Trevor has turned 36. He's a carpenter, father of three. He also raises alpacas and collects Corvettes. Happy birthday, Trevor. He's a busy guy. Happy birthday to Eugene of Berwick. This is his 77th birthday. He's a veteran. He maintains a bait supply business on the side in the summer. Thank you for your service, Eugene. No illness of the instant. You guys get off on that. You're lucky on that one. Uh, on this day in 1977, Guy Lombardo died. That was the day the music died, huh? Remember Guy Lombardo? Back when you only had a couple TV channels, that was all you could watch all weekend long. That football or Guy Lombardo. Known for half a century of, of New Year's Eve celebrations with the sweetest music this side of heaven. He died in this day at a Methodist hospital in Houston. Interesting when hospitals were affiliated with religions. He was 75 years old. He was admitted to the hospital October 27th. He'd undergone open heart surgery in September. His death came from respiratory kidney and heart failure. They spelled it here, failure, which is kind of interesting. Uh, over a span of more than half a century, millions of people danced in hotels and ballrooms to the cheek-to-cheek -cheek music of Lombardo and his Royal Canadians for more than 30 years, beginning in 1929. He and his brother were winter fixtures at the Roosevelt Hotel Grill in New York. More than 100 million of his band's recordings were sold, and millions of Americans, no one bothered to estimate how many, listened over the radio and on television to his velvety smooth offerings for decades. And Guy Lombardo. I don't know how much more I was going to get into that. Oh, he had a little blurb here. I think people are interested in tunes rather than screwy arrangements, the band leader explained. I prefer getting my rhythm from the shuffling sound of dancers' shoes. Interesting little side note there. I remember playing in a country music band a long time ago, and when we were playing, uh, uh, we were playing old uh, old rock standards. It was a country band. We played, but if we played an old rock standard, and there was like a drum break, and the band leader said, "I want to get it down so quiet that all we can hear is the people's shoes moving on the dance floor," and that was where we. That was the bottom audio level we had to get to. Okay, on this day, 1977, they changed the headline on me here. you got to pay attention. 7,200 at the Augusta concert. It was Arthur Fiedler leading the Boston Pops. Don't be put off by the fact that he likes to play popular music. Uh, warned Jeannie Neminoff. Uh, I guess it must have been somebody attending it, as we chatted about Arthur Fiedler last Saturday. Saturday. He may lash his players along, but he's a good conductor. 
and she can speak authoritatively since back in the 1940s, she and her husband Pierre performed uh, with uh, Arthur Fiedler in Philadelphia. And uh, I don't even know if they had parking for that many there that, uh, in Augusta and for 7,200 people. Uh, what else do we have on that? When World War I erupted, Fiedler came home to join the Boston Symphony, and then under the direction of Carl Muck, uh, a protean musician, he was organist, pianist, percussionist, violinist, and viol- violist. Hmm. Once he had founded the Boston Sinfonia, he slipped more and more into conducting, which he found extremely congenial. Then in 1929, he started to give the Esplanade concerts, and he really initiated the kind of programs uh, that people liked. Uh, We'll move on from that one. We had a letter here uh, we wanted to get from Clifford S. Pratt. And he's talking about a sick society. This is a letter to the editor in 1977. Coming home from Bangor after 1 o'clock Sunday morning, I slowed down for a red light near the Bangor house. I saw two juveniles sitting on the ground near the curb. They were making a lot of noise. As the light turned green and the traffic started moving, they started slinging sticky garbage at the passing cars. My car was one that really got plastered, and I had a cleaning job to do when I got home. What is one to do in a situation like that? No person in his right mind is going to stay up late at night for the purpose of slinging garbage at moving cars. Something is seriously wrong. This is a letter to the editor, mind you. We can thank God the state didn't close the Bangor Mental Health Institute. Believe me, it is badly needed, as our city streets are swarming with drug and alcohol-crazed people who desperately need help. Must we wait until some member of society gets killed or badly hurt by these mentally sick people before we wise up and put teeth behind our laws? Any society without strict rules and discipline is headed for real trouble. Crime will wipe us out if we do not put teeth Behind Our Laws. And that was, again, Clifford Pratt, a letter to the editor, 1977. What was he doing out at one in the morning, slowing down by a red light near the Bangor house? Hmm. Uh, Little Pleasures is another another letter to the editor from L.G. Holt. It's like a fake name. Uh, to the editor, the picture on page 17, Bangor Daily News, 10-26-1977 of the heated swimming pool. You can tell he's, he's angry. How much oil and or electricity does it take to heat a pool that size? Seems that some people don't care how much they waste as long as they can have their little pleasures. I mean, there's a song there somewhere. Uh, three hunters were shot on this day. They were out in hunting season two, or, or uh, two hunters were listed in good condition at Central Maine Medical Center Sunday. Like they asked him, how are you doing? I'm in good condition. Uh, they were among three injured and one arrested on the first day of deer hunting season in Southern Maine. Gerard LaRue, 24, of Lewiston, and Michael McAllister, 16, of Otisfield, and Peter Zink, 21, of Rumford, were injured in separate incidents as the deer hunting season opened Saturday in southern Maine. Warden Supervisor Russell Dyer said Elwood Dunn of Otisfield 
was charged with assault with a weapon after he mistook LaRue for a deer and shot him near Hard Scrabble Road in Poland. LaRue suffered buckshot wounds in the arm, chest, and face. He was taken to Central Maine Medical Center. In a separate incident, McAllister was shot in the arm when a gun carried by a 14-year-old hunting companion accidentally went off. McAllister was taken to a hospital in Norway and was later transferred to Central Maine Medical Center. Police said Zink was hunting in Andover when a bullet fired from another hunter's gun ricocheted off a tree, hitting him in the arm. He was treated and released at the Rumford Community Hospital. I remember a fellow saying a few years back that he gave up hunting in Maine because he realized that there were an awful lot of guys out in the woods that had been drinking and they all had guns and I don't know, mistaken for a deer seems kind of difficult to do. There was also a little bit of crime. They had a crate that, this is out of South Thomaston, a crate that once held 80 pounds of lobster was discovered on Saturday by a South Thomaston woman in the Waterman's Beach area. Sheriff Carlton Thurston said the crate was the one stolen from George Rogers earlier in the week. When the crate was found, the lobsters when the crate was found, the lobsters were missing. They so they had the empty crate basically. The investigation into the theft is continuing. Also, there were several area break-ins recently. Robert Holgerson reported to the sheriff's office on Friday that a bedroom set had been taken from his summer home in Hope. Clothing was scattered about the house and the door casing was ripped off. So if we did a deep dive on that, I wonder if that was somebody that was angry at him, like an ex or something, and they took the bedroom set and they threw the clothes around. And then we, if we looked at it with a detective's eye, a careful eye, we'd see the door casings ripped off because it made it easier to get the furniture out. And we solved that crime in 1977. Shirley Williams of Western Road in Warren reported to police that a trailer was broken into and bed clothing and other articles were missing and a lock was pried off the trailer. Mrs. Ron Phillips of Ratcliffe Island reported to police that a rock had been thrown through a large pitcher window, but upon investigation, it was determined that a partridge flew into the window. So two things we don't have today, partridges and pitcher windows. Joseph Vanell of Vanell's Point and Cushion reported on Monday that a $70 CB radio was taken from his vehicle while it was parked outside the Warren Barrel Factory and a $30 antenna was also cut. That sounds like, uh, that sounds like an inside job there outside the Warren Barrel Factory. Again, another name for a band, the Warren Barrel Factory. Let's roll it back to 1892. Uh, this would have been no, November 8th, 1892. The Biddeford Board of Trade seems to have considerable vitality. It is discussing better roads for Biddeford and a work jail to frighten tramps away while other local boards are waiting for election to blow over. What better way to provide housing for tramps and to frighten them away than put up a work jail? 
Edith said that the pulp mill companies are gobbling up every bit of timberland, timberland on the upper end of Scoggin, and they're trying to buy up everything that they can get a hold of. Talk about uh, Passamaquoddy Bay must be a constant source of delight to the man who loves saltwater fishing, for it affords every variety of this sport that is known. The Sentinel in, uh, tells him one item about the waters of the harbor being perfectly alive with pollock, and in another about the hal halibut fishing afforded there, and one man who caught a 200-pounder wow, past Macquarie Bay, and still another of two waiters on the New York steamer Winthrop, who improved their time while the vessel was at her wharf there last Wednesday forenoon, and in about two hours hauled in with hook and line, a barrel full of flounders, which sold in New York for $13. Some excellent catches of fine large codfish are being made on the formerly well-known fishing grounds off Prince's Cove every day. Until recently, these grounds had been abandoned, but it would seem from the indications that large fish are again gradually coming back to their former haunts, where 20 or more years ago they were to be found in large numbers. In fact, sardine fishing is about the only kind down there that is not flourishing. Yeah, because a big fish are eating all the sardines. Uh, we got a story about, uh, we'll read a little bit of it. It's about Miss Bentley. We couldn't verify it. Uh, but Miss Bentley was the English magnetic girl. and She accompanied Mr. and Mrs. Stuart Cumberland, on their recent visit to Copenhagen. This is a story in the Lewiston Evening Journal, 1893. Uh, and this is like, um, Stuart Cumberland was one of those that did like seances and stuff, and this was his niece. Uh, but Miss Bentley didn't even have a first name. Bef uh, before the golden wedding party broke up, she rather surprised His Majesty of Russia by some of her experiments. He keenly watched the efforts of the Prince Royal of Greece to push to the ground a billiard cue lightly held by Miss Bentley in her hands, and with considerable electricity, I can't quite read that, he took his nephew's place after he had failed. The Tsar of Russia grabs, grasped the cue with both hands and put his enormous strength into the effort to get the point of the cue to the ground. It bent and quivered, but all his majesty's efforts, like those of his predecessor, were in vain. But a still greater surprise was in store. He placed his hands under Miss Bentley's elbows and lifted. Up went the young English girl until her fair hair almost touched the ceiling. So the Tsar's picking up the girl by her elbows. He's a real strong guy. Then Mr. Cumberland explained that on that occasion Miss Bentley had allowed herself to be lifted, but when His Majesty next tried, he would find it impossible to move her. The Tsar smiled, but the smile quickly gave way to a look of perplexity when all of his efforts to lift her the hundredth part of an inch from the ground were unavailing. Still more surprised was he when Miss Bentley, lightly resting her fingers against the wall, resisted the efforts of various members of the royal party to push her against the wall. So I don't know if they're doing some kind of hypnotic mind control there uh, but they were doing these uh, seance experiments at that time and feats of strength and things now that was never really verified well we might look into it some more let's go on to uh auburn we'll look at some of the little stories there the 
evergreen hedge around the county courthouse in Auburn was torn away Monday and will be evergreen no more. Some think it's a decided improvement. Others feel that it was very pretty and has not added to the appearance of things by its removal. The Lewiston Stone Crusher broke down early Tuesday morning. It took half the forenoon to repair it. The consequence was that the men who worked there and on the streets had time to go and vote and the men who worked on the Auburn hillside were knocked off until Wednesday. The city treasurer of Auburn says, I'm not hurrying around to pay my bills now. Money is too high. I borrowed $25,000 recently at 4 and 3 quarter percent, but where last July they were anxious to loan at 3.5%, now they want 5 and upward. Money will be easier after January, no doubt. It's beginning to look finished is what the people of the streets and general appearance of the Auburn hillside say. Eight horses are hauling a 10-ton roller about the hillside. The largest horse will weigh 1,600 pounds, and the rest of them will average 2,800 a pair. Mr. John Clifford says that those who buy lots on the hillside can sell stone enough to pay for the grading and the building of their foundations. The city of Lewiston's making a good thing of the Franklin Company job on the Stone Crusher on Ash Street. As has been printed, the company paid the city $25 a day for the use of the crusher and the men. The company gave 30 cents a load for the fine crushed stone beyond this, and then they use only the finest that comes from the crusher, the other two sizes being given to the city. There are two loads of coarse stone, to one load of fine stone that come from the crusher. This coarse stone the city teams haul off and put on the streets. Thus, the city teams are kept busy all the time, and the city makes over $25 a day out of the stone crusher. Every city should have a stone crusher, is my thought. Uh, Here's a story about matches, the evolution of the match. I don't know if they use this for filler. Maybe I'm using it for filler. I think it was a good story, though. The first United States patent for friction matches was issued in 1836. Splints for them were made by sawing or splitting blocks of wood into slivers slightly attached at the base and the whole bunch being dipped at once into chlorzate of potash. They were known as slab or block matches and they are in favor in parts of this country at the present day, notably in Maine. Their chief advantages are that they are noiseless and will not leave a mark when scratched upon a white wall. The first lucifer matches were made by dipping splints first into melted sulfur and then to a paste of chlorate of potash and sulfide of antimony mixed with gum water. What is gum water? Each paper box contained about 100 matches and two pieces of fine sandpaper. They were lighted by folding the sandpaper over the end and giving the match a quick pull. These were manufactured in England as early as 1833, and a common name for them was loco focos. The composition used in many of the early chlorate of potash lucifers melted and dropped while burning, but this defect was soon remedied. The next step was to employ phosphorus, rendering matches easily ignitable with lower temperature and less exertion. Uh, 
A phosphorus match will ignite in 140 degrees, while it is probable that the lucifer required at least 200 degrees. The use of phosphorus for matches dates probably from 1832, being 172 years after the discovery of that element by Brandt, a Hamburg chemist. But the manufacture of phosphorus matches was attended with great danger to the workmen from the fumes which caused decay of the bones of the jaw. Isn't that interesting? Many persons were poisoned from carelessness in handling them, and numerous conflagrations occurred on account of the case with which they were ignited. The parlor match, in name, significant that other matches were hardly suitable for that section of the house. The parlor match had its origin with the manufacturer in 1848 of Schroeder's red or amorphous phosphorus. This product is of a scarlet red color, has neither odor or taste, is not poisonous, and does not take fire at ordinary temperatures. The latest important invention in matches secures the separation of the chemicals, which in combination are always more or less dangerous. This is obtained the safety match, which was invented by a Swede named Lundstrom in 1833. The head of the safety match contains chlorate of potash and sulfur, while the friction paper is spread with paste of amorphous phosphorus and antimony. I thought it was like alimony. This is a return to first principles, as shown in splints and acid of the light box. There are many odd varieties of matches now in vogue, such as the vestas of which the splint is waxed cord, fusies for lighting in a wind with a thick, short splint, tipped with a large mass of chlorate of potash, and natural gas matches with a very long splint for lighting natural gas tires and many others. The production of matches has grown to a manufacture of enormous and rapidly increasing proportions. Making of splints in great quantities began with the invention of Reuben Patridge's splint cutting machine. Previously, matches have been cut by hand by means of a collection of blades. Now the splints are forced through dies to give them a round shape. Splint cutting is at present a separate industry. The splints are sold by hogsheads, a barrel, right, to the match factories, and one machine will cut 10 million a day. Here's where it gets interesting. Electricity, however, seems destined to limit the use of matches. Lighting gas by electricity has been accomplished for some years, and the gas jets of many large audience rooms, theaters, and churches in this country are lighted by electricity by the pressure of a button. In residences with modern improvements, gas can be lighted in the halls and rooms on different floors from a switchboard situated at a convenient location. That was from the Washington Star, 1893. And speaking of stars, let's look up to the main shining sky. We don't uh, it's a little bit clear some dates, but not too much. Uh, the constellation Ursa Minor, the Ursa Minor, formerly called the Little Dipper because it looks like a smaller and fainter version of the Big Dipper. Its brightest star at the tip of the ladle's handle is Polaris, the North the Pole Star. At second magnitude, it is not especially conspicuous, however. The next two brightest stars, Kochab and Perkad 
are often referred to as the guardians of the pole star because they circle around it. Ursa Minor lies well away from the plane of the Milky Way and does not contain any bright, deep sky objects. In Greek mythology, Ursa Minor is commonly associated with one of the two bears who nursed the infant Zeus. They really had some twisted times. Um, Polaris is the brightest star in Ursa Minor. It stays fixed all night long. Earth's North Pole points almost directly at that star. Therefore, as the Earth spins on its axis, it appears that all the other stars in the sky pivot around this point. You've seen that in pictures, right? For travelers heading north, they simply aim themselves in the direction of the North Star. I find when I'm driving at night and trying to navigate by the North Star, I just kind of weave back and forth from one side of the road to the other. Well, I guess we're all starry-eyed enough at this point, so let's take a look at the weather forecast, and then we'll get you sent out the door to meet the day. Uh, for today, sunny with a high of 41 degrees, northwest wind 10 to 15, gusts as high as 35. I'm out breaking leaves. For tonight, partly cloudy, on and on 29. And then for Thursday, snow likely before 2 p.m., then I'm rain getting pretty so tired. possibly mixed with sleep. I don't want to play New snow and sleep accumulation You let me be. Oh. 